All right, really quickly today, we are beginning a brand new series called Revival. And I want to ask you to do something. If you have ever been a part of a revival or if you've been to a revival service at some part of your life, would you go ahead and hit the like bar, hit the emoji bar on Facebook? And I don't know what type of emotions that brings out of you, but I would imagine we're going to see some different emotions flying throughout, throughout this as we talk about this. And again, I don't know what emotions this brings up for you. For some of you, I would guess this might bring up some very fond memories of times in your life where you experienced something that was really, really genuine and amazing. And for others of you, it may bring up some really, really odd, weird memories. And for some of you, let's be honest, as I talk about revival, you're like, what's a, what's a revival? What's a revival service? Because maybe you didn't grow up in that type of church, or maybe you've recently come to faith or come back to faith, and along the way, you've missed those experiences when it comes to faith. And I just want to say, if you missed those, maybe, just maybe, you didn't miss all that much. See, here's what we're talking about and the, the definition that most people have when they think about a revival. Here's what most people think about. This is the definition from, uh, from, di from the dictionary. It says this, it's an evangelistic service or a series of services for the purpose of affecting a religious awakening. Now, I have been a part of those at different points along my life. My first experiences along the lines of revival actually came from, from my, the church that I grew up in, in tiny, tiny, tiny little 2,000 person, Watoma, Wisconsin, at Watoma Assembly of God. And for a good stretch of time, our experiences of revival were that every other year in our church, we would have a guest speaker, and it was always the same guest speaker, and his name was Dwayne Stone. Dwayne Stone would, would come to our church on a, and he would speak for a Sunday morning and then we would have special services on Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, and sometimes Wednesday night depending on how much reviving our church needed. Again, this happened every other year. And I grew up in one of those families where my, my parents were basically the people who said, if the, if the church doors are open, we're there. And these were the experiences in my life that made me wish my parents had discriminated just a little bit more. And, you know, gave us the freedom to say, you know what, we're not going every time. We'll skip out on these. Anyway, so I, I can't tell you much of any good that came out of these revival services. I'm, I'm sure some did. I just, I just don't know what it was. But I, I, I realized over the course of a few years, there was a few things that were always going to be true of a Dwayne Stone revival service at our church. Number one, the dude was going to be wearing makeup. The dude was going to be wearing makeup. Apparently, he frequently spoke at larger churches with, with, with bigger, you know, theater style, you know, lighting that, that he wanted to, you know, have his facial features defined in a more stronger, stronger way. That's at least what he said. Maybe he just liked wearing the makeup. I'm not sure. But what I knew is that our church didn't have any of that lighting. And so he's up on the stage of our, of our small little, you know, Watonga, Wisconsin church, and he's just this dude wearing makeup, which, you know, in the early 90s in a tiny little conservative Wisconsin town, you know, I'm just saying it was a little bit different for us. It, it, it caught us a little bit off guard. Number two, the dude was going to yell. I didn't mention this before, but Dwayne Stone was from South Carolina. And when South Carolina preachers come to Wisconsin, they yell. In fact, he would tell us every time he introduced himself, he was like, I just want to let you know, I'm a yeller. And I was like, I remember from last time, you know, like that, you, you didn't need to tell me. We all, we all know. And so he, he was, he was going to yell. He told us he was going to yell. He was loud, which again, in a lot of churches, that's great. And that's wonderful. And pre and some churches actually like being yelled at. 
The church that I grew up in, though, it was not a yell church. It was not a loud church. It was not a particularly responsive church. Matter of fact, still to this day, um, every, every time that I get up and preach, if I say something that's particularly strong and someone actually responds by going, amen, I'm like, oh no, I did something wrong. Because in, in Wisconsin church growing up, I mean, if something was particularly strong, the best response that you could give would be to go, hmm. And, 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 that, and that was it. That was the, emo, the most emotional and responsive that we got. But Dwayne Stone, he was a yeller. He was, he was a yeller. And so we knew he was, he's just gonna, he's gonna yell. And number three, the third thing that I knew is that things were going to get weird. Things were gonna get weird. I can vividly remember one time at, at one of these revival services. I think it was the final revival service of, of that particular week. I think it was a Tuesday night that at the end of the service, Dwayne Stone had us all stand up. And you're gonna think this is like a cult thing. I thought this was like a cult thing even when it was happening. He had us all stand up and we faced every direction, north, east, south, west, and we had to yell to that direction, give them up! Now, I still to this day, I don't know who they had, but they had someone and they needed to give them up. And so we needed to yell at the direction. It was weird. It was bizarre. I don't know why we did it, but apparently... We had to do it for some reason. Things were going to get weird. Now, looking back, I can laugh at a lot of that, but I definitely know that for a long time, those services shaped the way that I thought about the word revival. And let me tell you what I thought and what maybe you have thought about as well when you think about the word revival. That revival is an event. That revival is an event. That revival is a service. Revival is something you go to. And when you go, you get spiritually recharged. That the way we normally follow Jesus, well, maybe that's not all that intense. And so every once in a while, we need someone to come in and shout at us so that we'll get more intense and that we'll get more intense about the way that we follow Jesus. For us, it was every other year. Again, apparently that's how often we needed reviving. It became just another part of a cycle and part of the schedule that every so often, this is something that's going to happen. It was an event. It was a service. It was something to go to and something to experience, but I don't know that it ever really accomplished a whole lot. The revival was an event. And the other thing that I know that this taught me about revival and the other thing that I thought about revival as a result of, of these services was that revival is weird. That revival is something not, not normal. That revival is something abnormal. Revival is some, some experience outside of the normal Christian experience. That revival was uncomfortable. And I knew, I knew because our pastor said this, that revival is supposed to shake us up and move us out of our comfort zones. And it certainly did that, but I don't know that it did that in a way that actually produced much good in my life or in the life of my friends or my family. We thought it was just strange and it looked completely out of line and had no real world application to how we were supposed to live for Jesus. And then, and then I hit adulthood and, and my faith became my own and I started to read the New Testament and I discovered something that was really like just kind of blew my mind. And here's what I realized as I, as I began to read the New Testament and discover a faith of my own, that revival is not an event. Revival isn't an event. Revival is a person. Revival is not an event. Revival is not a service. Revival is a person. His name is Jesus. That revival isn't an event or a service. Revival happens every time someone meets Jesus, someone encounters Jesus, someone discovers Jesus and allows Jesus to raise to life the things that are in them that have gone dead, the things that we've allowed to die in ourselves, the things that sin has destroyed in us. And that every time we meet Jesus and allow him to raise to life what's inside of us, what God placed inside of us, that is 
revival. And revival doesn't spread because a service or an event gets bigger. Revival spreads because someone meets Jesus, sees Jesus raised to life the dead in themselves, and then realizes that they are in awe and in love with what Jesus has done in them and decides that they have to spread that to the people that are in their sphere of influence. So they introduce the next person to Jesus and the next person to Jesus and the next person to Jesus. Revival spreads because we spread the idea that Jesus raises to life what's dead in us. And see, when you look at another definition of revival, this is exactly what happens when we put our trust in Jesus. Another definition of revival is simply this. It's restoration to life, consciousness, vigor, strength, etc. See, we experience revival when we meet Jesus and he raises us from the death that we experience as we drift from God or as we intentionally walk away from him. And Jesus raises us to new life that we can never experience without him. That's revival. That's revival. And the amazing thing about this is when we understand that deep in our core, here's what we come to understand. Revival isn't weird. Revival is the most normal thing to happen in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Revival isn't some weird thing we should experience once or twice a year or, or, or every other year. Revival is actually something that should be happening every single day in our lives and in the lives of people that we're introducing to Jesus. So I want to spend a few weeks talking about revival and how Jesus meets us and raises us to new life. Now, like I said, I discovered this when I began to read the New Testament for myself as an 18-year-old college freshman living in the dorms of the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. As I began to pick up the Bible and read it for myself, there was something that I saw that really kind of, again, it stirred my thinking about what revival is and what it looks like to follow Jesus and how Jesus meets us in these moments of revival and these moments of resurrection. And here's what I understand and what I found so amazing, that we tend to think that Jesus started raising people to life after the cross and after the resurrection after the empty tomb, but Jesus called himself the resurrection and the life long before the cross and long before the empty tomb. And Jesus was raising people from death to life, actually physically raising people from death to life throughout his earthly ministry. So for the next four weeks, we're going to look at these stories of resurrection, of being raised from death to life, and we're going to find that there's some things that are unbelievably amazing about how Jesus meets us in our death and how Jesus raises us to life. The first one of these stories, it comes to us from Luke chapter 8. This story is also told in the Gospel of Mark, but we're going to read Luke's account. Luke's perspective on this is really interesting because Luke was a doctor. Luke was involved in sick to healthy, death to not dying. But Luke had never seen dead people raised. And so when Luke, a doctor, tells us a story about Jesus raising someone from death to life, this is a really interesting story. In Luke chapter 8, verse 40, we're told this, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Now, what was Jesus returning from? Just a normal ministry trip for Jesus. As, as Jesus was on this most recent ministry trip, here's what happened. Winds and waves obeyed, obeyed him. Demons were cast out by his authority. This is a pretty normal Jesus ministry trip. But the crowds didn't see all that. The disciples did. And the disciples who were with Jesus at this point, they're going, who is this man? The winds and the waves obey him. Demons submit to his voice and to his, to his, his authority. What, what is this guy capable of? And Jesus was like, roll up your sleeves, boys. I'm about to show you. And so in verse 41, we're told this. Just then, a man named Jairus came. He was a leader of the synagogue. He fell down at Jesus' feet 
and pleaded with him to come to his house because he had an only daughter about 12 years old and she was dying. While he was going, so Jesus said, Jesus was going with him. Jesus agreed to go with him. While he was going, the crowds were nearly crushing him. Now, I don't think we can overstate the drama of this moment for this family. Absolute desperation that this father and that this family are feeling in this moment. Because those of you who are parents, you know that when your kid is like sick, sick, I mean, you know, like there's some of us when, when our kid's sick, we're like, you know what? I wouldn't mind leaving the house a little bit. When your kid is sick, sick, the last thing that you want to do is leave their side. And this daughter, they, they, they believe and they, they have, you know, Apparently she had been sick for a while. They've tried everything. This man is a religious leader. He had access to the best doctors and the med best medical care that Israel had to offer. They've tried everything and their daughter is still dying. And for him to leave his daughter to go find something, he is in an absolutely desperate place. I would imagine as a father, as a husband and wife, you know, with their, with their, with their daughter dying close to them, this would have had to be like mama bear raised up and got in this dad's face and said, look, our daughter is dying. I don't care what it takes. I don't care what you have to do. You go find someone. You go find something that gives our daughter a shot and you don't come back unless you have something that can help our daughter. And I would imagine this father's going, well, I don't even know where to go. I don't even know where to look. I don't even know where to talk, who to talk to. Like, what if I can't get someone? And the mom, I would imagine just said, I said what I said. You go and you don't come back until you have something or someone that can help our daughter. And so this dad, this dad leaves, this daughter is, is literally at his lowest point. He's probably not making much sense. He's frantic. He's probably getting out little bursts of words like, da daughter, dying, help. You know, I mean, he's, he's frazzled. He's frantic. He's not really sure if he has any faith in Jesus. He's just heard some things about Jesus. And he just thinks maybe there's a chance that Jesus could do something for him and his family. Which brings us to an important realization about Jesus. Jesus meets people in desperate, confusing places. We're told that Jesus goes with this man, this frantic man, this man who's not getting out sentences clearly, this desperate man, this man who's really lost hope in everything that he has put his hope in. Jesus goes with this man. Jesus did not wait for this man to pull himself together, didn't wait for him to get his hair, hair, hair all, all put together, didn't wait for him to get his clothes cleaned, didn't wait for him to start talking in complete sentences, didn't wait for him to have perfect faith in Jesus. Jesus just goes with this desperate man. And here's why this matters. Some of you, you are absolutely convinced that Jesus is willing and wanting to meet and love a better future version of you. This, it's, it's, the, it's the version of you that cleans up your act a little bit. It's the version of you that doesn't think the things that you think. It's the version of you that doesn't get yourself into the crazy situations that you get yourselves in. It's the version of you that's not dealing with hangover headaches a couple times a week. It's the version of you that thinks you have to understand religion before you can come to Jesus. And I've got good news for you. If you think that Jesus wants, is willing and wants to meet a better future version of you, here's some good news. Jesus doesn't want to meet a future version of you. Jesus wants to shape the future version of you. 
Jesus does not want to meet the first future version of you. Jesus wants to shape the future version of you. And the only way that the current version of you can become the better future version of you that you were meant to be, that you were created to be, and that Jesus wants you to be, is for Jesus to be willing to meet you right where you are. If that's a desperate place, Jesus will meet you in your desperation. If it's a hopeless place, Jesus will meet you in your hopelessness. If it's a lonely place, Jesus will meet you in your loneliness. If it's a confused place, Jesus will meet you in your confusion. If it's a dark place, Jesus will meet you in the darkness and he will be your light. From wherever you find yourself, from wherever you find yourself, you can reach out to Jesus and he will meet you there. He is not waiting for a a future better version of you. He came to earth for you. You, you. And so the story goes on. Verse 43 tells us this. It says, a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years. You're like, wait, wait, wait. We're introducing a new character? Yes, we're introducing a new person. A woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years who had spent all she had on doctors and yet could not be healed by any approached from behind and touched the end of his robe. Instantly, instantly we're told, her bleeding stopped. Now, this is a fascinating story to include in, in, in the main story. The way this is written, this is kind of like the meat of a sandwich story. You've got this family who needs help that Jesus is helping, and then you've got this woman here, and apparently something's going to happen after this, but you've got this meat. It's almost like in the meat, in the middle of this story, we learn some absolutely incredible things in the story that kind of, you know, feels like it's an intrusion, that feels like it's invading the main story. And here's what we find out. This woman has suffered from bleeding, we're told, for 12 years. Another translation says that she had an issue with blood. And, and, and this is one of those stories that we've sanitized in English, but regardless of how you translate it in English, the Greek, the Greek you know, writing of, the, of this tells us very clearly that this woman essentially had suffered an intense, severe period symptoms for 12 years. Not 12 days, not 12 weeks, not 12 months, 12 years. She had spent her life savings going to different doctors, trying to find some relief, and had only found heartache. She's just as desperate as this dad. She's lost 12 years of her life that she can't get back. And if this guy, Jesus, can't help her, life might as well be over. So she reaches, you know, comes into this crowd, reaches out, doesn't want to be seen, doesn't want to be noticed, just wants to touch Jesus a little bit because she believes that maybe, just maybe, that's enough. And we're told that it works, that she's healed, that she experiences healing, that instantly she knew she had been healed. And interestingly, instantly, Jesus knew something had happened as well. And while Jesus didn't know, Jesus wanted to find out. In verse 45, we're told this, who touched me? Jesus asked. Like, now, I just want to say, I like to imagine that Jesus made this moment as dramatic as possible. Like he's walking, walking, walking. He stops all of a sudden and he throws his hands out like he's in Hamilton. And he throws his hands out. He's like, who touched me? And looks around. No one answers. And so because no one answers, Peter gets involved. He's like, when they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are hemming you in and pressing against you. Everyone's touching you. Everyone's trying to get something from you. Everyone's trying to get a piece of you. And then Jesus says this, someone did touch me, Jesus, said Jesus. I know that power has gone out from me. Here's what's interesting about this. This tells us something important about Jesus. Jesus wants to do more than meet your need. Jesus wants to meet you. Jesus wants to do more than meet your need. Jesus wants to meet you. 
right where you're at. This is important. I think, I think many of us are really deep down, and if we're, if we're honest, we are totally okay with the idea of Jesus meeting our needs and bringing us healing and bringing us hope. And if all, that's all that Jesus ever did, if Jesus was just someone that we went to and got our needs met everyone, so we would actually be totally okay with that. But Jesus doesn't want to be a spiritual sugar daddy. Jesus wants a relationship. Jesus doesn't want to be the source that you come to for things and then leave alone. Jesus wants to be, have a relationship with you. Jesus wants to be your savior, wants to be your Lord, wants to be your friend, wants to be the per, a person that you know. And so for this woman, Jesus knows that power has gone out, which means he has met a need, and he wants to know who reached out because he doesn't want to have just met a need. He wants to meet a person. He wants a relationship, and the same is true today. Jesus wants to raise the dead in you so he can build a relationship with the alive version of you. Jesus wants to meet and raise the dead in you so that he can build a relationship with the alive version of you. Verse 47 tells us this, when the woman saw that she was discovered, she came trembling and fell down before him. In the presence of all the people, she declared the reason that she had touched him and how she was instantly healed, which raises a great question. Why is she trembling after she's experienced her healing? Why would she be terrified? Why is she trembling? Why is she so afraid? Why is she hiding after she's experienced her healing? This is interesting. Under the Jewish law, a woman who had been bleeding like she was, like she was bleeding, was considered unclean. And when a person was unclean, they had a responsibility to avoid others so that their unclean didn't get other people Un, unclean, so that their unclean didn't affect people who were clean. This was especially true of religious influencers like Jesus. A religious leader like Jesus could have yelled and screamed and actually had her arrested and taken away for touching him while being unclean. So in this woman's opinion, she's worried that, hey, I just got free. If I get discovered, I may just end up in a new type of chains. So she's terrified. So this woman, she has finally experienced the freedom and the healing from the disease that has burdened her for over a decade. This should be the happiest moment of her life. And she's terrified. She's terrified. And unfortunately, unfortunately, this is what religion does to people. This is what religion so often does to people. This is why some of you, this is important. Do, don't, don't miss this. If, if you've tuned me out, turn, turn, turn this up, pay attention to this. Some of you, you need to lose your religion so that you can find Jesus. You need to lose your religion so that you can find Jesus. Unfortunately, far too many of us know the feeling of religion. And for far too long, Jesus has been associated with religion. And religion on its best day, religion does have a, a, a purpose. There's a, a reason religion exists. Religion on its best day helps people to connect to God. But you know and I know that religion doesn't have that many best days. And on its worst days, on its worst days, on its bad days, religion traps people, condemns people, throws heaps of guilt and shame on people, and makes people feel as if they'll never be good and never measure up and never be able to connect with God. And this is why, this is why some of you, you have been a part of church and you've been attending church and you've been attending mass and you've been attending religious functions for your entire life. And the things that were supposed to help you connect with God have left you feeling more and more distant and more and more disconnected. You felt like the very thing that was supposed to connect you to God actually made God feel further and further away. And this is why it's important to understand something. 
Jesus does what religion has not done and what religion can never do. Jesus does what religion has not done and can never do. Religion uses guilt. Jesus never used guilt. Jesus leveraged love. Religion tells you to try harder. Jesus tells you that he has already done enough. Religion tells you to get close, try to get closer to God. Jesus shows that God has already come close. Jesus saves. Jesus restores. Jesus sets free and Jesus makes new. For this woman, she could not get there with religion and religion actually made her terrified to try to get close to Jesus. Jesus did what religion could never do. Religion left this woman feeling ashamed of her, of her healing, ashamed of what she had done to receive the freedom that Jesus provided. And Jesus never leveraged that. Jesus was far better than that. Jesus is better than religion. Jesus is bigger than religion. Jesus does and Jesus can do what religion can never do. And Jesus does what religion has never done for you. For some of you, today is the day to lose your religion, to look past your religion, and to discover with fresh eyes the Savior who can do for you what religion never can and never has done for you. The story goes on. In verse 48, daughter, Jesus said to her, your faith has saved you, not healed you, which is interesting. Go in peace. Jesus knew that he didn't just heal this woman. Jesus knew that he didn't just meet her need. Jesus knew that while she hadn't physically died, in large part, she had been dead and dying for the last 12 years. And a single moment of faith had her reach out to Jesus, and it had met her need, and it had healed her disease. But more importantly, in a very real way, it had saved her. It brought her back to life. And while he's on, this is so, so amazing, while he's on this way to heal a girl, he raises a woman to life. Now, Story takes a little bit of a dark turn here in verse 49. It says this, while he was still speaking, so he's still addressing the crowd, he's still addressing this woman. While he was still speaking, remember Jesus is on a mission to do something else and he pauses to help this woman and to address this woman and to build a relationship with this woman who had reached out to him. While he was still speaking, someone came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter's already dead. This is a moment of incredible frustration if you're this father and if you're this family. Jesus didn't come through. You had reached, they, they'd reached out and they'd put their hope in Jesus and they were trying to get Jesus to come and Jesus didn't get there fast enough. In fact, in fact Jesus actually stopped to help someone else rather than hurry to help you. And some of you, let's be honest, you've, you've been there. Some of you have thought, don't bother because Jesus didn't work on your schedule, because Jesus didn't meet your need in your time frame. That when you wanted Jesus to come through, Jesus didn't work on your schedule. Verse 50, though, says this, When Jesus heard it, he answered him, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Only believe, and she will be saved. Which is interesting. That's the same word that he just used about this woman. And so everyone's got to be thinking, well, what's he going to do? Because when he healed this woman, he said that she was saved. Now he's saying that he's going to save this girl. And here's something interesting that we have to pay attention to. Jesus is still the Savior even when he's not on your schedule. 
Jesus is still the Savior even when he is not on your schedule. When Jesus doesn't work on your schedule, it doesn't mean that Jesus isn't working. It means that your schedule was broken. And if you have ever walked away because Jesus didn't work on your schedule, let me talk to you right now. May I suggest that you walked away because you were trusting outcomes rather than trusting the one who controls the outcomes. See, we've all done that. I've done that. Chances are many of you have done that. You've had moments of doubt and moments of frustration and moments of feeling like you wanted to walk away because Jesus didn't meet the outcome that you expected of Jesus. But if you've done that and you're watching today, it's time to come back. It's time to trust in Jesus, the one who controls the outcomes, not the outcomes themselves. So in verse 51, we're told this, after he came to the house, he let no one enter with him except Peter, John, James, and the child's father and mother. Everyone was crying and mourning for her. But he said, stop crying because she is not dead, but asleep. Verse 53 says, they laughed at him because they knew she was dead. They laughed at the very person that they sent to bring her healing. They laughed at him because they knew that she was dead. Verse 54 says this, Disturbed by their laughter, Jesus left the house and said, Next time get someone you won't laugh at. That's not what Jesus did. That's not what Jesus did. Thank God that's not what Jesus did. In verse 54, the actual verse 54, it says this, So he took her by the hand and he called out, Child, get up. Her spirit returned, we're told, and she got up. At once. Then he gave orders that she be given something to eat, which was the proof that she was truly alive. So here's what's interesting about this moment you don't need perfect faith to experience Jesus' power. You do not need perfect faith to experience Jesus' power. You need just enough faith to let him lead. You need just enough faith to let him lead the way. Think of this when Jesus tells the parents that their daughter is just sleeping, they almost laugh him out of the house. They, they, they literally out loud, people who are grieving start laughing because they're so convinced that Jesus has no idea what he's talking about. His, the way that, that this is written, we're actually to believe that Jesus' disciples who were there with him think Jesus is wrong and are laughing at him because Jesus, this girl is not sleeping. She's dead. They laugh at him. But here's what's interesting. While they're laughing at him, they don't send him away. They still have just enough faith to let Jesus try whatever Jesus is, is, is talking about trying. They still have just enough faith, just enough hope that, well, maybe he actually is right to let him lead the way, to give him access, to give him permission, to say, you have your way, you try whatever you want to try. They have just enough faith to let him do that. And it turns out that that little amount of faith is enough for Jesus. It's enough to allow Jesus to do what Jesus can do and to allow Jesus to do what only Jesus can do. See, some of us, let's be honest, for some of us, this is a sticking point. That when you can understand it, you can follow Jesus. When you can see clearly and the fog is lifted, you can trust and follow Jesus. When you have no doubts on your best days, when you have no doubts, you can trust Jesus and follow Jesus. But when you can't understand, when you have your doubts, you're certain it can't work that way, trusting Jesus becomes really, really difficult. And I just want to remind you, in those moments, you do not need to have perfect faith to follow Jesus. And you don't need to understand perfectly to follow Jesus. And you don't need to remove all doubts to follow Jesus. You just need enough faith to let Jesus have his way, to let him lead the way. You have to have enough faith to follow where he leads. And what's amazing about this story and where this story ends is that this is where Jesus is always leading. He's always leading from death to life. Always. 
This is why revival isn't an event. Revival is a person, and his name is Jesus. Revival isn't an event. Revival is a person. Revival is Jesus. He's the only one who can revive you. He's the only one who can take the dead in you and raise you to life. He's the only one who can take the things that sin has killed in you and raise you to life. That's who he is, and that's what he does. So, today, would you let him meet you right here, right now? Not some version of you, 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 current you, today you. Let him be the Savior who does more than meet your needs and your wants. This, let him be the Savior who builds a relationship with you. Let him have his way so that he can do what religion has never done for you. Let him be God even when he doesn't work on your schedule. Let him be the Savior who is working even when he's not working on your schedule. And let him be God who's in control even when your doubts and your fears are very real. Let Jesus be your revival. Because only Jesus can raise to life what's dead in you, and only Jesus can raise to life what's dead in me. Only, can Jesus, only Jesus can raise the dead to life. Now, as we close today, I, I want us to do two things. Number one, I want to invite some of you to begin that relationship with Jesus. I want, you to, I want to encourage you to invite Jesus to be your revival, to be your reviver, to be your savior, to be your Lord, to be your friend, to be who he is always is and to be who he has wanted to be for you since the moment he came to this earth. And for some of you, what that simply looks like is to take a moment as we're, as we're watching this service, to take a moment to put your trust in Jesus, to say to Jesus, I'm, I, I'm, I'm dead. I've let sin kill way too much of my life. I've let sin strip away far too much of my life. There is so much that's dead in me and only Jesus through your power that you displayed on the cross, through your power that you displayed when you rose from the dead, that's the only hope that I have from being raised from death to life. And today that can happen in a moment. We can put our faith in Jesus in a moment and experience for the rest of our lifetime the life that he has to offer and the life that he invites every one of us into. And so I'd encourage you, while we're, while we're, even while I'm talking right now, to pray to your heavenly father and invite him to be your savior and your Lord. The second thing that we're going to do today is we're going to sing some songs of worship as we close. We're going to sing some songs of worship, and specifically, the first song that we're going to sing is a song that I asked our band to lead us in. It's called Lord Send Revival. And as we sing this today, I, I'm, I just, I, I, it's a song that I love. It's a song that I asked specifically because I knew we were going to be talking about revival. And I would just love if all across our city today, in, in living rooms and in bedrooms and in family rooms and in kitchens, if we could take a moment to pause, and I know this, may, this sounds weird and this is uncomfortable because I think for a lot of us, singing out loud in our homes, it's, it's easier to, to watch someone else do it on screen than for us to do it in our homes. But I would love for this to be our prayer, for this to be something that maybe we sing and shout at the top of our lungs, Lord, send revival. Lord, send it to me right now. And what we're praying as we, as we sing this song is simply this, Lord, there's a lot of dead in me. Even those of us who have been following Jesus, there's still some things that are dead in us. And as we sing this, what we're really saying is, Lord, would you send Jesus to show what's dead in me? And would you begin to bring it to my attention so that I can allow Jesus to bring it to life? And I can move forward in the relationship that Jesus has for me. I can know him more fully. I can know him more deeply. I can give him more access to my life so that he can raise me from death to the new life that you have for me. So Lord, send revival. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you're so good. Thank you for this story of revival. Thank you for this story of raising people from death 
tongue life. Thank you that it happened 2,000 years ago. And thank you that you're still the God and you're still the Savior who raises us from death to life today. Thank you that that's who you are. Lord, today I simply pray that we would trust that that's who you are. That we would lean our entire lives into your loving hands. And I simply pray that we would have just enough faith to trust you and allow you to raise what's dead in us to the life that only you can bring. So God, help us to do that. Lord, send revival. Send it right now for every single one of us watching and listening right now. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.